You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Invest Ottawa, the lead economic development agency for Canada's capital. We teamed up to produce this special series to celebrate women leading in Ottawa for International Women's Week. In support of its women founders and owners strategy, Invest Ottawa offers programs and services that enable and accelerate the growth and success of women entrepreneurs from every walk of life. Visit www.investottawa.ca slash women to learn more. This is the third episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Haile, and today I am here with Saber Piktu Lee. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm well. It's uh, lunchtime here, actually. It's really great to be a part of this initiative, and I'm uh, super appreciative for you having me on board. We had a we had a wonderful conversation when we first met, and I was really ecstatic to see that you were part of the International Women's Week initiative that Invest Ottawa is putting out. Love the work that you're doing, Saber. And so for the audience, Saber is a Juris Doctor of Law candidate, MA, BFA is Mi'kmaq from Eel River Bar First Nation in New Brunswick, a highly acclaimed Indigenous speaker, trainer, liaison, and researcher. Saber is also the co-founder and CEO of Archipel Research and Consulting, Inc. Archipel is a fast-growing, women-led company specializing in Indigenous research and engagement, equity, diversity, and inclusion services, and cultural competency training. Within Archipel's mission of bridging worlds of knowledge, Sabre leads a diverse and dynamic team of experts to assist organizations in changing for the better, especially to be more inclusive to BIPOC realities and worldviews. Archipel has served such noteworthy clients such as the Canada Council for the Arts, Assembly of First Nations, Global Centre for Pluralism, ISO, APTN, Covenant House of Toronto, Canadian Heritage, Parks Canada, and the Native Women's Association of Canada. Uh, a former downhill ski racer who competed internationally and varsity rugby player, I did not know this, Saber continues to be heavily involved in the world of sports. She's an avid outdoor enthusiast who works to honor and promote land stewardship. She also serves as a board member advisor to Protect Our Winters Canada and Humanity and the Outsiders Network. Really excited to, to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there as well. Um, Saber spends her free time adventuring on the land. Currently, she lives in Kejibuktuk, Halifax, in her home territory of Mi'kma'ki with her partner and their pooch moose. And I just learned today that pooch is another word for dog. And so <laughs> I am a recent dog lover and I am so excited to, to have you here, Saber. Thanks for spending your time with me um, today. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about your origin story and kind of how you grew up. Wow, I think that's the first time I had someone read me that bio. And uh, uh, thanks. There's a lot in there. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. I think this is a really great opportunity to talk about what the world from the Indigenous lens in terms of research and EDI work looks like and exploring that from an Indigenous entrepreneurship uh, lens as well. I have a, a really challenging time thinking about an origin story, uh, but I also have a challenging time centering myself really in anything, which is a really unique challenge, I think, especially to the BIPOC community and this idea of imposter syndrome. And I think that actually has a lot to do with my origin story. So 
as it was alluded to, I'm Mi'kmaq from Yelvabar First Nation in Northern New Brunswick, but through the process of colonialism, I was actually raised closer to Northern Ontario. And that was a really interesting upbringing because I was so disconnected from my culture and my mother is a Mi'kmaq woman from Il River Bar, I had this deep sense of displacement growing up that was really amplified by experiences of racism and other forms of oppression, especially in Northern Ontario. I, from a really young age, felt uncomfortable in that kind of nuance. Like I didn't quite understand the perception of racism, but I knew it wasn't okay right it wasn't something i wanted to engage in and it wasn't something i wanted to see continue on especially in my family and in my communities i was i always like to preface this because i think from the place i am now it's good to know that i was always a really troublesome kid <laughs> and i actually ended up going to five different high schools i was expelled from and asked to leave a handful of high schools and I was a really problematic youth. And that's not uncommon for a lot of BIPOC youth, especially Indigenous youth. And I met, my, I met a lot of barriers in that way. Thankfully, to tie in being an athlete, I was able to channel a lot of my experiences through athletics. And uh, it was in my high school years when I started playing rugby. And I had a coach from Concordia University, where I ended up doing my undergrad, come and say, why don't you come to university and play rugby? And I didn't graduate high school till I was 20. So it took me a little effort there. Uh, and at that point, I had no idea what I wanted to do. No direction and no interest other than I really liked playing rugby. <laughs> and so I had this university coach say, well, you know, we'll help you with the application process uh, and support you through this and give you tutoring supports and, you know, get you involved in the university life to play rugby. And so I was really fortunate to have that because what that really meant was there was huge barriers to getting into university, right? We have application barriers, we have language barriers, we have grade barriers, we have cultural barriers. All of those things exist. And if it wasn't for but for the help of this individual in guiding me through, through that process, I would be you know, nowhere where I am today. So I ended up in university, put on academic, academic probation my first year. So almost flunked out. Took me five years to do my undergrad, which isn't uncommon, but you also have five years of athletic eligibility to play. So I really wanted to capture that. But what ended up happening was in my third year at university, Concordia started a First Peoples Studies program. And so that really centers on Indigenous studies, right, in Canada. And I ended up falling into that path and it just ignited a passion mm -hmm. within me that I, I didn't know I, I had, right? Wow. And yeah, and so then all of a sudden I took all of those nuanced experiences and realized there, there was a field I could explore these things, articulate them, and revamp things going forward. And it took me from this you know, very difficult student to being um, you know, a 4.0 student, achieving great grades. And in my fourth or fifth year, I had an Inuit art history uh, professor who's at Concordia. Her name is Heather Eagleridey. 
And I like to bring her up because she was the single person in my young life to say, why don't you go do your master's degree? Why don't, why don't you go do something with this, right? And before that, nobody had ever told me that that was something that was possible. I was the first person from my immediate family, from my mothers and my two brothers to finish high school. Uh, so my two brothers and my mother didn't even get a chance to finish high school. I finished that and I had no idea what the doors were after that, right? So this one Indigenous professor was able to really instigate this, this chain of events again, right? And I really like to attribute a lot of, uh, a lot of thanks and appreciations to her because I didn't even think I could apply to a master's degree, right? It wasn't a radar. And uh, I ended up going to do my master's in Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University. And I ended up graduating with a 4.0. From there, I, I, during, well, actually during my time in my master's, I was working a lot as a researcher. And I was working a lot within the Indigenous Studies field and within the EDI field. And I was realizing that within the area, our values and principles weren't being reflected back in the research practices, in data collection, uh, and these reports, as, as you may be aware, but these reports are really big tools that, that shape policy designs, shape directions of organizations. And what was happening is they were uh, conducting research that was about us without us. And that just wasn't sitting well with me. And thankfully, my co-founder and I decided, well, this box isn't working for us, this path of playing you know by the rules that that previously exist by the frameworks that are, that are in place wasn't doing us justice in terms of our own principles our own values and the quality of data collection that was happening so we went forward and actually co-founded our chapelle in uh, uh 2019 together in, in my last year of my master's and from there i actually went on to finish my Juris Doctor of Law at Dalhousie University, the Sherlock School of Law. And during that time, I was a full-time student balancing that and also building a, a company that since 2019 has grown to be a leader in Indigenous research and EDI work. And we now have, uh, I think, 25 plus staff on our team. Wow. I didn't know that about your journey, Saber, um, having these critical people who asked you questions and guided you a little bit and made you see something that just in terms of, you know, pursuing postgrad and what that could look like and just stumbling into a program that really lit you up and a program that you've helped shape. Um, in, in the work that you're doing right now with Archipelle. And I don't know what it is about 2019, but the last three individuals that I've had on the power of why all started their businesses in 2019. And um, I love that. All, all in very different industries, all doing really powerful work. And I'm wondering, curious to know the unique lens that at Archipelle that you and your co-founder and team of, of 25 are leading out with your clients. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. I think one of the, the foundational, really innovative ways that we engage in our work is this idea of intersectionality, which is a Black feminist theory. 
as well as consensus decision making. And the third one would be Edwaptamank, which is a Mi'kmaq methodology known as two-eyed CA. And so these three uh, principles or frameworks, when engaged together, allow for really nuanced way of existing. And so I can break that down a little bit more. Intersectionality is this recognition that experiences from different lenses often intersect, and those experiences are nuanced in themselves and have to be um, uh, explored. And then consensus decision making as an organization, we work internally on a consensus process, which means we remove this kind of hierarchical scheme and sit down in a talking circle with my researchers or my support staff and our leadership to build our protocols or you know our research approaches mm -hmm. collectively. So it's this process of we move forward together in unison instead of making you know unilateral decisions. And that translates with our clients. All of a sudden we're sitting at that uh, we, we've equalized the table when we're sitting with our clients, right? We're not just taking um, unilateral direction. We're instead working in this kind of consensus kitchen style, as I like to call it, talking mm. circle, right? To move things forward. Um, I think that has been something that has set us apart a little bit. And just the fact that we're willing to meet people where they are to help get to the point where we want to be together, right? And that consensus piece is, is pretty critical. And uh, that just plays into Edawaptamunk, as I mentioned, which is the idea that both the Western lens and the Indigenous lens have really strong principles. And we don't have to pick one or the other, but we can you know, do blended approaches that take strength from both worlds. What needs to exist for consensus as a way to make decisions for that to actually happen? What needs to exist at the table? <laughs> That's a really good question. And I think uh, the most simple answer would be the idea to leave somebody's ego uh, at the door. And I think that's a really good way to understand the principles of smudging. And so a smudging takes place before conversations happen with the idea that you're cleansing yourself of you know, thoughts, ideas, energies to walk into a space. Uh, pure isn't the right term. I don't like, I don't like that term, but the, the idea of being free from, you know, past thought. And then you smudge at the end of a meeting as well to be free from, from that piece and move forward. And I think leaving your ego at the door is kind of a virtual way of doing that. You know, we'll tend to walk into these spaces and something could be said that might irritate your ego. And then all of a sudden that's going to cause you to want to make a unilateral decision, right? But mm. you leave that behind and say, all everyone's lived experiences, lived professional experiences at this table uh, have value to them. That's really what it, consensus is about. And that's really what levels the table. Mm -hmm. I like the term that you used, uh, I think it was kitchen conversations, because it just reminds me of conversations that we have with our families, our friends, our loved ones that are just so candid and open and where you don't, where you almost do not need to perform to be in that space, right? Um, I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, Indigenous principles, Western principles being very strong, um, and it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive in order to move forward. What are some Indigenous principles that you want to share with the audience to kind of frame 
your approach to work and um, maybe get the maybe get ideas flowing for other people as well in terms of how they do work in their own organizations? That's a really tough question. I think the specifics of these principles uh, can vary field to field, but there are some overarching things that for the audience to take away, uh, whether it's engaging with Indigenous peoples within an organization or outside in a client-based perspective, or really anywhere in between, a great tool would be to consider UNDRIP, the United Nations Declarations of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And yeah. that's very foundational and inclusive of a lot of Indigenous principles and values, which are usually centered around self-determination and ownership and control and uh, free prior informed consent. And all of those ideas come down to the, the, the underlying theme that Indigenous systems and ways of knowing deserve respect and uh, uh, equal footing, right? So it's this, this idea of, of un wanting to learn, understand, and respect our differences. Hey there, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. Sabre, you've taken a very unconventional path. You've created really important spaces for people to come together in community and also advise organizations that are looking to be more inclusive. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to challenging the box, the so-called box, and really creating new ways forward, whether that's in the professional sense or even just the way that we kind of lead our lives. Yes, so that's a great question, and uh, it, come, it comes up a fair amount, and I'm always shocked in part that what we're doing is challenging that box, right? Because mm. what I, I think we're really doing is we're just being kind to people, and we're being you know, kind to everyone as a company, as individuals, and I think the fact that being equitable and inclusive and honoring Indigenous stewardship and all these, these nuanced things in the BIPOC community, if that's innovative, then you really need to take a deep look at what yeah. you consider being kind is or being inclusive is. And I say that because a lot of the principles that I encourage clients to partake in that we pride ourselves on are things like paying your, your people well, right? Paying your staff above living wages. If there's inflation, ensuring that the salary or the wage reflects that inflation. Uh, taking critical feedback from your personnel to ensure that you're doing the best that you can to facilitate a work-life balance, right? Mm -hmm. We actually just launched, we just launched our official hours at Our Chappelle and we close at 2 p.m. on Fridays. That was something that I wanted to embody as an organization. I think the goal is eventually to get to that four-day work week, but trying to maneuver within the society that we have in North America, we launched that 2 p.m. closing on Friday. And that really came from, one, the Indigenous principles of you know, rest and family and ensuring that that's at the forefront, and the radical Black feminist principles of of radical rest, right? Like this, this idea 
shouldn't be groundbreaking that if we facilitate healthy balances within our personnel and, and pay people well and allow these nuances to exist instead of trying to restrain them, yeah. all of a sudden we're having a better working environment as a whole. And as an organization, when we do strategic planning, the number one thing that my co-owner and I or the management team and I, we want is for Archibald to be a good place to work at. Like we want to have good retention. We want to be a great place to work at, a great place to build a family with, a, a great place to be part of your growth and, and your life as a whole. So I challenge the audience and I challenge entrepreneurs and the organizations listening to this, uh, if that's something they're engaging with. And then on you know, the flip side of that, the, the, the individual challenging the box idea, you do have to have a lot of faith in yourself as, a, as an entrepreneur. And that's not an easy task. And I have to give so much gratitude to those handful of individuals in my life that have believed in me, like you know, my mom. <laughs> my mom's my biggest supporter. She also drives me crazy more than anybody in the world. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand. But I could list all of the people that believed in me over, I'm turning 30 in March. So I could list all of those people that believe in me probably on two hands, right? Within, within 10 people versus if I wanted to list all of these people that didn't believe in me, I'm sure that could go on and on forever. And quite frankly, I have no recollection of anyone not believing in me because I just you know, refuse to make space for that in my mind. Be radical, be innovative, be creative. I think my love for the arts, I'm sure as you can see behind me, instigates yeah. a lot of a lot of just willingness to think outside the box. And I think art is, is a great tool to think that way. One, one thing we're starting to do is we're starting to work into our invoices right now, a, a concept of a, a BIPOC repatriation fee, right? This idea of like, we wanna start charging clients a fee that goes towards BIPOC community initiatives, just supporting those initiatives or we're starting a continue, uh, continuing education fund internally where if our researchers or any of our staff wants to take another diploma or degree, yeah. there's scholarships, there's funds available. Available, for, available for them. Yeah. And any, any just kind of things, right? Where if you have uh, somebody in the community down the road that needs help paying their power bill, like we want to start we, we have started setting funds aside and we're reflecting that in our invoices and we're communicating those to, that to our clients, right? Like, I, I, I think this is the creativity and innovation that we can do in 2022 and, and don't limit yourself to those boxes that we're seeing. There's, there's a lot of resources and a lot of information like this fantastic podcast where you feature all kinds of really great people doing all kinds of really great things. And uh, I really think you should, everyone should be taking advantage of this and having that, that faith to take those leaps. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you in that. Um, I also believe that it's crazy that that's considered innovative because I feel like we're returning back to slowly returning back to how we used to live and uh, prioritizing rest, your life not necessarily revolving so much around work, but like work is a part of your life. And so even this idea of work-life balance, I think is flawed because there are so many other areas that, um, that make up our life. 
And I really like the idea of you charging clients for a lot of the things that you're investing in, just in terms of the community aspect, professional development, all of yeah. those other factors. That's really, really important. I'm wondering if you can speak to, um, this is something that you mentioned in our earlier conversation around colonial ways of working, the move to four, four day work week, finishing work at 2 p.m. Do all of these play into colonial ways of working? And if you could just expand on that idea a little bit more. Yeah. I think I said repatriation, but I meant reparations for BIPOC reparations for the cheese. Yeah. yeah, so the community reparations. You know, this is, it's really funny because you, you see a lot in that social media limelight, this like grind lifestyle. Like if you're not yeah. living the grind, you're not going to be successful. And that's super colonial. That whole concept stems from colonization stems from the idea that capitalism and colonialism are the ultimate goals. And that gets really confused, especially within our communities, right? Like, I think there is this huge narrative we're trying to unravel. That's like, if you want to get out of poverty, you have to work 80 hours a week. If you want to you know, be successful, there's only one road to that. And that's this consumption of capitalism and colonialism, right? That prioritizes economic development and benefit over individual well-being, right? And I really think that as we work as a society to scale that back and really take an introspective lens to understand the impacts of that, we're going to start to see anti-colonial ideas that are this idea of rest and family. It's really not radical. I I think people try to align anti-colonial ideas with anti-state ideas or anti-democratic ideas. And that's not the the case at all. I, I think there is a very healthy way we can structure work and enjoyment and all of these nuances that make up an individual without compromising concepts of of economic development and creating jobs, right? It's really interesting because I like to tie this to the idea of environmental protection. And so Mm -hmm. there are a few, and and bear with me because I'll make the loop here, but there are some initiatives that are ongoing that have to do with indigenous land management and co-management and the idea that Indigenous principles of land stewardship and uh, the ecological systems that we employ to care for the land actually provide more economic benefit back to the mm. larger community, right? There's a lot of research done on this, especially in Australia, and the, the Indigenous Rangers program or the Indigenous Sacred Land program. That research shows that every dollar that's invested in that program, $3 comes back. To the economy. And so I challenge us to really start thinking about what that looks like, right? How this cycle happens when we start engaging in anti-colonial principles of radical rest or uh, like we really structure, most of our full-time employees work 30 hours a week and their pay is equal to someone who's in the federal government working 40 hours a week. And what does that that mean? Well, that that means there's more time to engage in these other activities that often are quite reciprocal to the economy as a whole. There's work on that called like Indigi Economic and and literature around there. But if we 
remove our like horse blinders. I like to call them that this horse blinder thing that we have where like if we run ourselves to, you know, the point of a nervous breakdown, like we will hit success and that will, you know, lead to some pivotal moment of liberation, right? And no, like liberation starts right now in the little nuanced ways that we exist every day in the in the kind words we speak to our family members or the people we see uh, outside. And this idea of taking care of your community and your neighbors then is this reciprocal relationship that's a little bit anti-colonial, but it's actually quite foundationally <laughs> beneficial to the yeah. state as a whole, if, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, as someone who grew up to Ethiopian parents who came from this place called Tigray, they came to this country with a lot of those beliefs and they it clashes with the way that your life is structured here the idea that we barely have time to see family or even engage with our neighbors is so foreign because when you go back home it's it's very normal for for people to spend you know every evening together um regardless like it's very much a village and just the support that you get for even raising children from your family members, from your neighbors is, it's very community oriented and also just furthers the idea that you don't have to do life alone. You know, you don't have to navigate these challenges on your own because it's a lot. So I'm wondering if you can speak to, speak to this. It's funny because while you were talking, there's so many things that run through my mind. In part, there is this idea of, and I love to talk about it, you know, the professional gatekeeping issue and and how that plays into all of this right and you're talking about how your parents had embodied this idea of maybe the american dream or you know the canadian dream and what that really looks like and then all of a sudden you're met with all of these barriers and what do we and what do we do with those and that's like an ongoing question that i challenge everyone here listening to think about how do we dismantle these barriers they're not beneficial barriers for anyone. If you talk to most managers or directors of mid to large size organizations, they're, they're still facing a lot of these barriers. Um, the, this idea of resource extraction from communities instead of uh, resource commitment, right? And what I mean by that is what you're giving intellectually or physically is being outweighed by the benefits you're receiving. And we've created that. One of the ways I think that is my favorite way to combat these barriers is by challenging yourself in the way that you invest in your organization as a whole. And, and what I mean by that is because we're always, I think, looking elsewhere, looking for solutions elsewhere, whether it's your own individual problem and you're trying to outsource that somehow, or you're running an organization of two or three people and all of a sudden you feel like you're hitting a wall in the skill sets that you need. And now you're, you're in a panic because you feel like you need to outsource, right? What we're doing and what I challenge other people to do is to commit your resources internally. And you can take that in many, many ways. You can take that as an individual who is running a solo company, a sole, sole proprietorship. You have a little group of resources. Invest those in yourself, whether that means building your own internal skill set 
or taking a break to visit with family, strategizing on how you can redirect your resources internally is really critical. And if you challenge yourself on that simple premise to redirect resources internally, it will mean you have to identify the barriers preventing you from internally hitting that target that you're, you're, you're thinking is, a, that is an issue, right? And that's the biggest problem because if all of a sudden, and I'll use my organization as an example, we you know, have hit projects or have hit milestones where we feel like we've needed a certain person with a certain skill set and we didn't have it internally. So we go, uh, oh no, we're in a panic. We need to bring on somebody else who has this skill set, right? Which means we need to invest significant amount of resources externally to bring somebody in internally. If you pause and challenge yourself to go, how can I reinvest those resources internally without outsourcing? You may realize that there was a barrier that you had no idea was there. If I wanted to outsource, it often wasn't because somebody internally didn't have that skill set. It was because they didn't have that opportunity to develop that skill set. And that is, if we all of a sudden, you can, yeah, you can create opportunities internally to develop something, you're mitigating that barrier. And so when I'm talking about these barriers, often we're talking about skill set developing, those are limited to people who've had opportunities, ample opportunities. So if you're outsourcing to someone who's already developed a skill set, it's usually because they've had some level of privilege that has enabled them to develop something, right? If you're investing internally, you're now enabling maybe an individual who had barriers or systemic barriers to develop that skill set instead. And I use that a lot, a lot in reference to the BIPOC community because there is this thing, this leads me into this idea of professional gatekeeping, where we're in a phase right now where you're seeing a lot of organizations go, oh no, like there's, you know, this equitable call, we need to hire three BIPOC people internally, right? But oh no, there's no BIPOC people with the skill sets that we want. So we end up hiring non-BIPOC people. If all of a sudden you're reinvesting your resources, you're, you're realizing that there's a substantial amount of barriers that often prevent, especially BIPOC people, from achieving those or developing those skill sets. So I go, okay, instead of hiring someone new, I'm going to pay to send one of our team members through developing a skill set, whether that be through mentorship programming, which is a huge professional gatekeeping barrier. Not everyone learns best in the academia style. And if you're looking solely for somebody with academic credentials, you're negating an entire population that has just a different learning skill set. So we have, we have one researcher who has not gone through formal academic training, is absolutely brilliant and is able to develop their skill set through mentorship and through you know repeating skills visually seeing them happen and then repeating them that repetition repetition really bodes well if i had just said f it i'm going to go hire somebody to do that skill set i would have just been continuing to amplify all those barriers that already exist by prioritizing these colonial concepts like academic institutions that are big barriers for our BIPOC communities. So that was, I feel like a very long rant from hoping everyone in the audience can really understand how just that single self-challenge of how do I invest this internally could reshape all of those barriers, all of those systemic barriers that are ongoing in our society. Yeah, and a lot of individuals when it comes to DEI work, believe that this should live within one part of the organization. They 
everything that we're thinking about when it comes to, you know, really challenging the way we do things need to go through there. This has nothing to do with my work on a day to day, which is, which is very dangerous actually to think that you are exempt from thinking about ways to integrate inclusive thinking into your day to day operations and just how you see decision making, how you look at the power that you actually have in your role. And so I really love the example that you used with um, a challenge that I think a lot of individuals and companies can uh, resonate with because it's something that is not exclusive to like one type of organization. And so thanks for painting that picture. As we wrap up the episode, I'd be curious to know, you mentioned commitments in one of your earlier responses, and I'm wondering what commitments you've made on an individual level to yourself. I find this probably the most challenging question in part because I think that I that's an area I can definitely improve on. Um, my my father called me a race car. He's like, you're a, a Formula One race car, and you know you have to care for yourself like a Formula One race car. Mm. and that's a really funny analogy to me but it also rings really true um because I think it's a really nice way of telling me that I'm like high strung and like a little neurotic um (laughs) but I, I think those are qualities that also bode really well especially being an entrepreneur and you know I will be you know transparent I sacrifice a lot of my well-being to ensure well-being of uh, the people that work at my organization. I own my company. I'm not the highest paid person in my company to ensure that there is a better well-being in the organization because I, I wanted it to really be structured that if I need to step out to take a break, it will be a you know well-oiled machine to function without me. So that being said, I might not be the person to model all of, all of these wonderful self-care tips off of because I really do live that intense life of waking up bright-eyed at 4am and like shooting emails off and doing all of those lovely things that is not sustainable Mm. and I like to preface that that I don't find it sustainable at all I also find that I really prioritize um, self-care in ways of like working out and eating well for me that that idea of like being a formula one race car impacts me that way on another front, I got braces like a month ago for the first time in my life. So things like that, that I'm reinvesting in myself and just ensuring that, that I have those aspects of well-being. I struggle with uh, generalized anxiety and I'm always trying to find new ways to work with that, which is hugely challenging. There isn't a how-to book. Right. And if there was one, <laughs> yeah, if there was one. I'd say it probably wouldn't work for most people anyways. Uh, and there's a little bit of trial and error. Uh, I work a lot. I'm a very supportive partner. I'm trying to learn new ways to cope with my anxiety. My anxiety also fuels very much so my, my business drive. I take really good care of my uh, physical body and I eat well. I do sleep well. And I think those are things that we sometimes overlook, but those basic necessities you have to be doing like, please drink your water. I see a lot of those posts. It's a good reminder, but drinking your water really does make a difference. I am a mama bear 
not as in I have children, I do not have children, but like the people in my organization, I like to think are a little bit of my children. And so I'm really motivated by just ensuring their well-being, which motivates me to do well in a business structure. Uh, I also have to acknowledge I've been really fortunate to have an element of creativity and I like to paint and those things are really good outlets. I do traditional hand poke tattooing and you can't see, but I have quite a few tattoos and I challenge a lot of those norms uh, and I have those outlets for when I'm overwhelmed in certain ways. Trying to find just a balance that works for you is how I show up for, you know, the best version of myself. And sometimes it's not possible. Mm. I think that is so important to take that away. When I, the way we have built the organization, our Chappelle, it, it allows me to show up not in my best version. If I have not put everyone's well-being at the forefront, that might not be so right. But because we have a good structure, we have a good team and a good community where everyone's you know, cared for, I can show up and go, I'm having you know panic attacks today. I can't go to the office. And we have team members that can share their, their struggles as well. And, and then they have you know mental health days available to them. That's really what allows me to, to be okay in my everyday life is just to know we have a supportive community. They do all of the, the things I can to ensure I'm at the best I, I can try to be. But that's not always going to equal 100%. And you have to be willing to bend with yourself and, and bend with your team. So well put. Thank you. And thanks for being uh, transparent. I really appreciate that on the show. Hey, uh, you know, there, there's no, I don't think anyone's having like a super easy time no. all the time, right? No. And I think, I think we come off as we really are and it's just, it's not the case. So yeah, yeah I think that's great. I think that's a, a learned way of coping with things. And I think we're in the same boat when it comes to just being like honest about where you are right now. And also um, not just honest with yourself, but honest with the people that are around you so that you can be supported in the ways that you need. So thanks for, for this wonderful and very eye-opening conversation. I know that it will resonate with a lot of listeners. What is the best place for people to connect with you? That's a great question. Um, uh, I do have an email. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know if you want to open up your email on here. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm like I know I'm not a, a socially apt person. I do. I don't know. What do people say? I have an Instagram account. Okay. I have a work. In, there's a work Instagram. <laughs> the only reason I made that comment about you opening up your email was because you mentioned that you're firing off emails all day so <laughs> i know i know well, what wanted to protect you a little bit. I, I have a linkedin i'm super available via linkedin that's a good one <laughs> wonderful <laughs> and um i'll put the links in the show notes where you can find all things our chappelle research and consulting the amazing work that saber and her team are doing and really appreciate you being here really appreciate all of you who listen to this conversation and we will catch you in the next episode of the power of why this episode is brought to you in collaboration with invest ottawa the lead economic development agency for canada's capital we teamed up to produce this special series to celebrate women leading in ottawa for international women's week in support of its women founders and owners strategy, Invest Ottawa offers programs and services that enable and accelerate the growth and success of women entrepreneurs from every walk of life. 
visit www.investottawa.ca women to learn more.